Hello and welcome to another special episode of the TNC podcast. I am so, so, so pumped to get stuck into this yellow and green conversations there. Can't quite believe it's happening, to be honest with you, because it is definitely with one of my childhood heroes. 241 appearances, 0304 first division title winner, 18, yes, that's right, 18 clean sheets in 0304, played for England whilst at our club and had a long throw like a medieval catapult that could have reached the, the cathedral grounds from Carrow Road. Greeno, Greeno, Greeno. Robert, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Chris. Yourself? I'm very good, thank you, and I'm pleased you're well. How's how's life treating you? Where are you in the world, by the way? Uh, I am. I live abroad now, uh, so we decided uh, as a family that my son was about to go into high school, and we could live comfortably and happily in uh, in North Yorkshire, and decided to go for a change. So we've moved abroad. Um, which is very, very different. Obviously, it's a real, it's been a real challenge. But one way you think, hold on a minute, we're okay, we're, we're, we're now getting to grips with it. And the growth is, you know, potential for growth in kids and the change and the challenges that it brings is, is brilliant. You know, you're walking from a school where it's beautiful little school in the Yorkshire Dales, where there's 10, 12 kids in the class to mixing around with kids who speak five, six languages at 10 years old. So, uh, the, the, it's, it's a big world and it's it's one that we felt that we could do a change and and try something different. Amazing, mate. Well, fair play to you and all power to you. Good for you. I don't blame you as well because the, the, weather, the weather is fairly miserable, of course. In Costa del Norfolk, it, the, the temperatures are slightly above average, as you yep. would have experienced. And uh, I guess that leads me nicely on to the, the first question, Robert, which is, if you don't mind... Um, and I say this with bated breath, let's rewind to 1999, shall we? <laughs> Quite a few years ago now. Yeah. Um, obviously, at the time, you, you were coming through the, the youth ranks at, at Norwich City. Um, you made your debut against that, that dodgy team in blue and white down the road, if, if, if I'm correct. Nil-nil, mm. of course, another clean sheet for you. What were your memories like going into that game? And, and I guess that, that first initial sort of period as a young goalkeeper at Norwich City? Um, yeah, it, was, it felt like a long time coming for me. Um, although it was sort of as, still as a teenager that you, I joined the club uh, actually in nineteen, I think it was nineteen ninety two or ninety three. Must have been a little bit after because it was soon after, pretty much when they beat Bayern Munich in the UEFA Cup was when I joined uh, the club. They were in, Norwich were interested in me. Um, Colin Watson, Gordon Bennett would make a lot of effort to come down to Woking where I lived uh, and see my parents. They were very keen to meet my mum uh, because you're, as a child, you always grow taller than your taller than your mum, apparently was the rule. So they met oh, my okay. mum, was very tall. They were very pleased. They sort of said, right, you've got a job, you've got a future here. And so I spent a number of years going up to Norwich and playing on a, this group of us all got the train from the West Country or from South London, or the outskirts of London like myself, and we'd get up. And it was a it was a brilliant system that the club had that was kind of fast-reaching all over the country, all over the UK. So I was a part of that. Um, I broke my back when I was 14, and the club stuck by me. And I was out for two years. They paid for the operations. They looked after me. I remember spending an Easter in the old 
Norfolk and Norwich Hospital while there was a, a heat wave going on outside and I was stuck in the hospital in a, in a sort of in a plaster cast which was the length of my body uh, for a couple of weeks so that wasn't fun um, but so yeah moving up there when, when I was 16 it was quite good you know initially I, I, I love the movies sort of it's a great place for that sort of age of person. It's a brilliant environment for you as a 16 year old kid. Cause it's, you know, it's a, it's a small city in mm. terms of the actual size of it. And you can get around it walking. You don't need a car and you can meet your mates or do what muck around or whatever, do whatever you can. And it's, it's, it's a very easy way of life whilst it's still being a city and, and stuff like that. So, that was that was great to move up to and i made a lot of friends because i because i brought my back i went into stayed in school to do my a levels but went to a school in norwich and it, it was uh it was actually sort of it became too much to do football and the schooling so i dropped out but that was that was sort of a, a really good introduction into meeting local people meeting friends there made lifelong friends there so that was good and then, yeah, stepping into full-time football, which was a challenge. Obviously, it's a very, very different environment from being a sixth-form pupil at a school. And, yeah, it just felt like I'd been at the club, although you're kind of relatively young in terms of footballing-wise. You've been at the club a long time, and you feel like the chance, you know, you're waiting, waiting. And, you know, I remember sort of various managers come and go in, tough times, being there financially, Delia saving the club, that sort of thing. And, and it really sort of having an effect on the pitch as well. Um, personally, for me, I felt like chances were pretty few and far between. Brian Gunn was playing and Andy Marshall came in and took over and played every game pretty much. He was, he was incredible in that regard. And so I never felt like I was really going to get a chance. I wanted to go out alone. No one let me because we didn't have any keepers because we didn't have any money. So it was that it, there was a tough regard, and then yeah, it kind of reached a point where he's kind of thinking, "Is this going to happen?" I remember Brian Hamilton didn't really fancy me and sort of wanted me out. I think at one point, and but beyond that, I think you know Bruce Riot was the manager at the time to give him a debut. Andy Marshall had got sent off in a game, and. I think we play in Huddersfield and Daryl Such went in goal after about five minutes, of which we were already one nil up and he got sent off. And you just sat there thinking, wow, okay. Not only am I got to make my debut, so it wasn't an immediate suspension like they do now, it was a delayed suspension. So the build-up was even longer, which made it worse. And not what also made it worse was Daryl Such nearly kept a clean sheet with 10 men. And <laughs> so I, I think we scored an own goal to make it 1-1. Uh, it was a horrible Tuesday night in Huddersfield. I mean, it was not one that will live in the memory for anybody else, apart from myself, who was sat on the bench as sort of not, because we only had three subs. Yeah. I wasn't one of the subs, hence Daryl Such going in goal. And Bruce Riot would just turn around and shout. I mean, he kind of ridden it off as a game. You've got your right back in goal and you're down to 10 men, you're going to lose. And Daryl kept making these saves and he just kept turning around and shouting out and going, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. And I was thinking, 
oh god this is going to be a nightmare i'm waiting for my debut it's going to come eventually and not only is it sort of i've got to step into marsh's shoes that mm. that is keeping clean sheets now so uh yeah it was uh it was an interesting build-up to that first game I, I want to ask you about when you then cemented that that number one jersey role because of course it was very much yours when andy marshall uh mm. made a very controversial move to again that that dodgy team in in, in blue and white down the roads did, did you feel you, you strike me as the guy that doesn't feel pressure, really. But at that stage, at that age, did you feel pressure then becoming the number one? As you say, if, if it was, you know, Gunny and then Marshy always had it. And then mm. all of a sudden you're in there as number one after he left. How was yeah. your feeling around that time? Well, I played a number of games in the end of the last season under Nigel Worthington after he'd taken over. I think we sort of I remember beating Tranmere. Brian McGovern scoring in the last minute to win 1-0 at Tramir when they had all the sort of Dave Challoner and the long throws and, and that sort of stuff. And as a kid, just walking off being beaten up in that game, thinking, wow, that was tough. Imagine what a whole season's going to be like. And, and I turned to Nigel and, and he was as good as his word. I said, look, you know, all I've ever asked for as a professional is a chance. Just mm -hmm. give me a chance. And that was at the end of the season. And he said, Okay, so they got Paul Crichton in uh, as an experienced backup, which was you know a sound move, and he was sort of good to have around in with us as a a character to keep sort of the group ticking over. The club were really good. I also said, look, this is a really important year for me and the club. We were, well, I think, we were one of the favourites to get relegated that season, my first season, and I said, look, what I'm going to go through, I don't really no so i need someone to help me and whilst marsh was there we were had a goalkeeper coach malcolm webster who due to uh ipswich's success eventually ended up going full-time at ipswich but he'd do a day at ipswich a day at luton with kelvin davis and a day at norwich with us and he, he lived in cambridgeshire and drive to the three and then he turned around and said look i've been offered a full-time job in ipswich I've got to go. George is going into the Premier League, rah, 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 that sort of stuff. And they had that brilliant season where they got into Europe. And, and we said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll speak to George. And if it's all right, you can come down a day a week. So me and Marsh would drive down to Ipswich to their training ground and train with them. Really? Out of, out of kindness once a week. Yeah. So we spent spent a lot of time going down there and it was sort of for marsh it was kind of a natural move he knew everyone it, there's obviously the, the controversy about the the rivals and, and obviously like that and yeah to which i always point out that they are 45 miles apart uh it's kind of it, it, it's it's one that uh it, but it, the intensity is obviously still there uh but it was a natural move for him i didn't want to do that drive once a week for a goalkeeper coach where they might not be there. They might have an away game. It's tough to work out. So I said, look, can we just get someone in full time for me to help me? And the club said, yep, yeah, okay, we'll find someone. One of his Malcolm's assistants, James Holman, came in as a goalkeeper coach and he was a brilliant help for me, sort of a proper confidant, someone to, to lean on and, and just, just, 
to protect me in some respect as he'd go into meetings and bat the corner and they'd have long chats about it because you know, it essentially was still a kid going into it. And yeah, it was it was a fantastic first season. In terms of pressure, like you said, yeah, I mean it was tough because Norwich is a type of place where it's it's the biggest club by a country mile in the area. You know, you might get the odd person who supports a Liverpool, a Manchester United, a, a Messi fan or a Ronaldo fan or whatever it might be, but you're a Norwich fan and everyone's a Norwich fan. So the is you know, you live in the area and all you know is people know that it's Norwich and that's it. So it was there, the pressure was there. I used to sort of, you know, you feel sick before games, you'd be winning at half time. I think we went on a fantastic run at home at the start of the season. You're thinking, Christ, you know, we're winning at half time again. And it's just sort of the nervousness. And you're thinking, oh, I'm going to be sick here. So you go off and be sick and go, right, okay, go for the second half. And you go out for the second half and play. And but you learn to sort of use that emotion as a as a friend and you become accustomed to it. So as the season wore on, you're kind of thinking, okay, this we're gonna have ups and downs, we're a young side, but it was a brilliant roller coaster ride. I think the only the difficult time was sort of at the end, sort of part way through that first season. I played twenty odd games and I was just absolutely spent. I didn't know it at the time, but I was just physically, mentally spent. I think we played Chelsea in the FA Cup and they, we, we got we got pumped and I didn't have a great game. And I walked off the pitch and I took my shirt off and I had scored one of the goals there. I had stud marks from my neck all the way down to my stomach from, I must have been, I think it was Frank Lampard following in one of the shots that I'd saved. And, it, and I didn't even know. I was that tight. I didn't even know it happened to me. And I was just there covered in blood. And it's just it. And I just sat there and just went, Christ, what, what, you know. And to be fair to Nigel and Doug Livermore, they turned around and went, look, you need a break. Wow. And, and he just, and and I think that was the one of the best things. Christ went in and played a few games and it just gave me a few weeks just to have a step back. And I think that was probably that season a really good thing to have happened because if he wasn't there and they didn't have that ability to see that and I just carried on going, it, it would have only gone one way. That's absolutely fascinating stuff, Robert. And um, we, we we spoke there about um about Marshy. Um we're lucky enough on this podcast to be in contact with a few uh, people and, and when we um when we officially book in a guest we reach out to their former teammates and we say, have you got anything on them? Um, we've got two today and um, we'll kick off with this man. What does Andy Marshall say about Robert Green? Good morning to you all. Well, I say it's morning. It's morning where I am in East London at Millwall Football Club training ground. Um, obviously, I want to speak about Robert Green, um, my old compadre down at Norwich. And um, just want to maybe send a couple of messages regarding him and the times that we had together um a phenomenal phenomenal goalkeeper who's had a phenomenal career um in the top end of the premier league international um it, it it speaks volumes about the guy um from a young age at the age of 14 i remember i remember greeny going away with him i was a 18 19 year old and he was 14 years old and i went away as the goalkeeping coach i'm just i'm a, 
unprofessional. And I remember going away and we went across to, to Holland and spent a week with him. And it was the first time I actually got to know Rob and know what he was all about and see the type of character and see the potential that this young man could become. And without a doubt, he fulfilled it and, and surpassed it. And it's credit, it's credit to the guy because, you know, the times that we had at, at Norwich, um, we worked really hard together. We built up a good relationship. Um, we had fun times. We went out. We enjoyed each other's company. And, you know, this, this whole thing of competition to become the number one, whilst we had it in Norwich, we had a, a good camaraderie. And that's something I learned from Brian Gunn, who passed it down to me. And, and then hopefully I'll pass a little bit of that onto, onto Greeny. But I can't speak highly enough of the guy. Um, a true character, a true character of the game. Um, I remember a story one time up at Blackpool. We're playing Blackpool away and we're not playing till the evening. And um, we decide to go to uh, the Pleasure Beach there at Blackpool. Is it the Pleasure Beach? I forget what it's called. And um, we're all going on the, the punch bag machine to see how hard we could hit it. And um, Greenies literally hit it as hard as he could and got the lowest score, like embarrassing, like horrendous score. And he's never lived it down. And from that moment, he got in the gym, pumped himself up and became the monster of a, of a, of a man that he became. Um, but yeah, listen, the, the guys, the guys had a great career. Um, his character, his charisma, um, his personality. I love watching him when he goes on on TV and commentates on games or gives his analysis at half time or full time, um, and and that's his character. He's he's a very laid back individual, very intelligent, um, and very intelligent man, and uh, fantastic career as I said before, and um, living his life to the max. I'm sure at this moment in time up in the north. So, listen, hope you have a great interview. Loads of stories to tell. Um, I'm sure like most of the lads, the stories that I have, I can't put on um, because I think they're a little bit too close to home. More for me probably than him. Anyway, listen, good luck. Have a great interview and um, Greeny, I'll see you soon, pal. Bye-bye. Mr. Andy Marshall, what's your reaction to that, Greeno? What a relief. <laughs> <laughs> one down, one to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it could have been, yeah, it, there could have been a lot worse in there. It's very kind. Um, don't take compliments very well. And no, he was, you know, one of, one, well, I'll speak more about him later, I think, but it's, uh, he's right. I think that, that you have a close-knit group. I think that, you know, we talked about their travelling to Ipswich and back all the time. I think learning off Gunny and him, you learn, you know, how to do things, how to do things right, how, you know, it was, it was, it was tough, you know, physically demanding, mentally demanding. And it put me in good stead for the rest of my career. And that's, that's, you know, that's kind of really where it, where it grew from. And he talked about that, but, you know, he has to take credit as well, along with others. He talked about James Holman, he talked about other people, but it's what you absorb. You, you, you're a kid, you take it in, it's like a sponge. So I think, you know, that as much as he praises me, that it's kind of off the back of him that you're kind of learning. And, and uh, yeah, he's a fantastic role model. 
one down, one to go, as I say, Greeno. Don't think you've got off Scott free, my friend, because I think the second one, you might be in a bit of trouble. But anyway, let's uh, swiftly move on to um, probably maybe a bit of a difficult one for you, Greeno, which is um, 0102, a case of so close yet so far, a very... Um, a very successful opinion in 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 my opinion um sorry a successful season in my opinion where we'd managed to get into the playoffs um of course we'd we'd previously interviewed Malky Mackay and he was sharing all of his great memories from you know that that sort of period of getting into the playoffs and then of course the heartbreaking game at the Millennium Stadium and I wanted to ask you what your memories were of that season and and specifically that that game at the Millennium Stadium yeah, well, we touched on it before. There was it was my first season, and as as the number one after Marsh had left, I think after obviously having that rest out, we sort of went on that run that we really sort of were kind of well, it was almost on it was goal difference, wasn't it? That we snuck into the playoffs. It was by one goal. I remember speaking to uh, Paul Gascoigne. Uh, later on, a few years later, and he was playing for Burnley at the time, and he said Magnus Hedman had pulled one out the top corner from him from a free kick. That if that had gone in, then they would have been into the playoffs. Um, so, yeah, I think I remember playing Stockport on that last day and thinking, just about getting the word. You know, you, as a goalkeeper, you're always the last one to get the word in, and you're saying, right, two nils enough. We've we've, we've done it. And they were down to 10 men. They had a kid in goal. A young Andy Dibble had been sent off, hadn't he? And you're thinking we're making absolute pig's ear of this, trying to get goals and battering the goal. The kid, kid in goals making saves. And it's kind of, you look back and you think over your career, there's moments where you say sort of brilliant moments of absolute joy. But because there was still work to be done, you couldn't really enjoy it. I remember the lads opening champagne in the dressing room, and I'm sitting there going, "What are you doing?" You know, it, it, we haven't. We've yes, it's it's, it's relatively successful, yeah. you know, but this is this isn't the end. We're not. This isn't the end. I I don't. I didn't see. I couldn't understand sort of the process of of of, of celebrating not winning something. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of so. As much as a, as a you know a joyful occasion it was, it kind of still wrapped up in the moment and and still in the process of right. Okay, Christ, we've got to play Wolves next week, who are streets ahead of us in the league. Um, the away game for that was probably one of the best atmospheres I've ever played in, and it was so hostile, mm. so just pure anger because a they were angry about not being promoted automatically b the injustice of the playoff system see they'd lost 3-1 in the first leg they were angry with us they were angry with the manager they were angry with the owners the fans were just angry and it just to feel that anger being transferred across from person to person and, and i remember some of them unveiling a banner saying he's let us down again and it, I mean, someone at the end of the game, someone came prepared with that. You know, they talk about pessimistic or what, you're just thinking it's crazy. But that was a, a great game. And you knew, I remember uh, 
they is it Kevin Cooper came to score who he came to us later he scored an absolute screamer and I remember the ball going in the back of the net bouncing out it going absolute uproar and I looked at Craig Fleming and Craig Fleming looked at me and just went come on let's go oh okay <laughs> and you think wow okay we're in a really good spot I think we're in a you know you look around and go it's not a problem let's, let's carry on playing Mm. Uh, we saw it through. We had a really poor away record that season, relatively speaking. We lost a lot of games, and that was another one. And I think that that sort of played into the in the final, although it's a neutral venue. When we did score, we kind of, I know it was extra time, but you almost felt like you scored too early. Uh, it could have been on with being three minutes earlier or 20 minutes later. And... Yeah, it was it was a difficult one. Uh, I thought, with hindsight, Nico Vassen did a bigger job, was more of a presence in the goal for the penalties, made us miss more rather than, you know, I think he only saved one maybe, but just to be a presence in the goal, use his experience, use being, rather than going, Christ, if I save a couple of these, we're going to the Premier League. You know, it, it was just season and, and that but that's experience and that's big time you yeah know, that, that's moments in time where you learn from so i thought it was it was a brilliant experience i thought the manager handled it brilliantly handled the season brilliantly uh looking around after the disappointment of the final there were the it, it, i think it hit the older players more mm-hmm. right, yeah. who hadn't played in the premier league maybe played and dropped down maybe viewed it as their last chance um for me i just wanted to win every game and uh, just had a tunnel vision of where i wanted to go what i wanted to do and the fact that we hadn't won it mm. was kind of a massive step set back in that sort of in my great green i want to i want to show something to you now you, i've no well i'll be surprised if you don't remember this i'm gonna put it out there certainly in my lifetime this is the single best norwich city save of all time do you remember this in the playoff final i mean it was just absolutely phenomenal and i know of course you mentioned there the penalties but you know this was just such a vital save and i know it amounted to nothing but you know that 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 moment there was just it was just ridiculous and I, and I must ask you is that the save that that started um the 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 infamous robert green wonky finger <laughs> no no that wasn't no it's the ones i didn't save that started that um no that was that was a clean contact that was fine okay, okay. You know, it, there was you have moments in games and moments that stick with you throughout your life. And the the goal for the in in extra time that Jeff Horsfield scored, I had a fraction of a second running across the goal to make a decision of do I do what I did there and stand up and try and be big, or do I go and dive? And I thought it's just a bit further. I've just got to dive. So I dived horizontally as opposed to saying vertically, and it hit my waist, hit my hit my sort of my stomach on the side. And as I dived, I 
I've got that wrong. And if I'd have gone across like that, it would have hit me in the stomach and possibly, who knows? It's, it's all conjecture, isn't it? It's, uh, but it, it was, you just get those moments that stick with you. And that was one for me that was kind of, you, you make decisions in the blink of an eye and they're successful or not. You can't regret it, but you just remember it. And that was something that stuck with me. That stuck with me more from the game than anything else. Just that moment. Interesting. Not saves, not the penalties. Just, just, just that moment of it hitting the the feeling of it hitting me rather than hitting me there. Yeah. I, honestly, I still remember the heartbreak in in the supporter base to to this day. So I'm not surprised that that you remember that. Greener, I'm, I'm sure. And um, let, let's talk about a happier time now at Norwich City, shall we? Let's let's lift the spirits a bit. Let's talk about 0304 winning the title. Obviously, Nigel Worthington at the time. That team just destroyed the league. And I ask every every player from that era the same question, and they give a, different answers. What for you was the the secret recipe for that season. What what made that team tick, in your opinion? Um, two loan signings. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah, you, you you get better players than everyone else. You win the league, and there weren't many good games that season. Mm-hmm. There weren't many games where you thought, "Wow." we played really well. I thought there's a lot of games where we ground out a lot of wins. Uh, well, you then, clean sheets, didn't you, Greeno? So 18 clean sheets says to yeah. me, a lot of those games, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think was a back five. We had a really good understanding. Mm. Uh, we, were, we, were, we were happy with how we were doing. It was steady. We, we were just steady. And we, we could walk out to a pitch and go, I think we had a little wobble at one point. And I think, I can't remember who we were playing, but I called the five of us in just before the kickoff. Like, you know, teams have their little huddle, which is yeah. a load of, load of rubbish. But because if, if both teams do huddle, we'll, we'll, you know, who's going to win? No one. Um, uh, but I just wanted to emphasise with us and say, look, I think we've gone three games without a clean sheet, four. I said, today, doesn't matter what happens. We keep a clean sheet. And we just looked across the five of us and went, it's no one else's job. That's our five job. Just mm-hmm. get back to what we know, get back to doing the basics well. And we did that. And we did the basics really well. I mean, the secret of the season was we didn't start very well. I turned to Nigel Worthington on the uh, on the training ground and said, we're not good enough. And it was, we're not got a good enough side. It's fairly clear. From the results, uh, you know, and he said, "I know." He said, "Leave it with me," and it was a masterstroke from him to spend the whole budget on two players <laughs> on loan. Yeah, he got us into. He's a he's a great poke game of poker. He got us into a position where he turned to the board and went, "Well, this is yours to lose now." Wow! And that's that's essentially what he did. Yeah. Said, well, backers, you know. And there was that Willie Wontier time with, with Hux. Uh, Crouchy obviously went on elsewhere, but then to get Matt Svensson again, who was playing at a higher mm-hmm. level, you know, really good player for that, to come drop down and go, 
bang, yeah, okay. Uh, and Leon, obviously, that was all off the back of um, the manager mm. uh, getting the board in the corner, like completely boxed them into the corner, and they they were left with no nowhere to go really because if they we beat, I think it was Forest, was it on Boxing Day or something like that? I can't remember, and I think. I can't remember who scored, but Ian Henderson provided the cross or provided the goal. I can't remember, but it was a brilliant moment for him. But you knew that if he was going to have to play every week, yeah, it was going to. It was not as good as having Darren Huckabee on the pitch. Yeah. You know that, and that that's nothing against Endo. It's nothing against anybody. It's just the way football works. You get better players, you get better results, and and it was a masterstroke from the manager to do that uh, to get Crouchy, to get Hawks, get the ball to them, and and they'll do something. Greeno, let's let's talk. You know, we've started to speak at length there about about some of the players, and of course, prior to this podcast, you've sent in your best Norwich City eleven from your time at the club, and I remember you what's happened me before, and you went, "Cool, blimey, Reva, I'm not sure how I'm gonna." possibly create a team oh. from all my years of the football club so you must have spent some time uh going through this so let's get this up on screen and start to go through this from back to front i'm fascinated by some of your selections obviously you've spoke about the excellence of of, of huckabee already um obviously marshall as well maybe let's start with with, with the back four i mean you know, Kenton is a player that we don't often um speak about on this podcast for example what's made you select him for your for your best 11 um, well, we, he was a year older than me in the youth team, and we came up through obviously at a similar time, stayed in the same digs. And on his day, he could do stuff that you know no one else could in that side. And mm -hmm. as right back goes, Mark Edworthy was was one that was a brilliant, really sort yeah. of you know really steady guy. Just just would be out on the pitch and you know what you're getting. But Kent's, Kent's had something extra. I don't think as a youngster he had the uh, um, uh, the, the ability to string performance and consistency really to, to um, be dependent upon for a whole league season. But then I just felt, you know what, he probably was a better footballer. And he went on to play for Southampton in the Premier League, had a good career. So... You know, there's a lot of this in where you say, oh, well, as a success for Norwich, he was a better player. I've gone for the better footballers. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, from there, you've got, you know, I think Mark would probably feel a bit hard done by because he's missed out as one of the one of the back four, uh, the, the only one. There's the other three with Adam Drury, Malky and uh, Fleming. It's just a very, very successful, steady guys you know it was, it was funny to play with them Flem and Malky would have tantrums with each other every game uh you know they they they'd pass the man on to each other they wouldn't want to mark the man he's got to mark that now it was quite good fun to watch at times uh it's funny uh, Greeno as well Greeno because they blame each other because we've had both of them on this podcast and they make sure. each other moan <laughs> even yeah, to this absolutely. game and I was behind them moaning as well so it was really good fun uh yeah, Adam Drury, again, he's he just very, very consistent guy, very, you know, he was a captain of the team. He, 
he would just be the epitome for a young guy. I mean, he played a phenomenal amount of games for Peterborough. By the time he was like 21, he played, I don't know how many games. 5,000 games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He just, just endless list of games. And, you know, he just came in happy, steady every day and was just good to be around. He sort of sat there and as a manager, sometimes you go, right, okay, what I, what I need is, is I just don't need problems. And, and, and he was never, ever a problem. So it was, it was really good. I think, you know, you go into that midfield and you turn around and say, as I touched on before, I signed in the um, sort of early 90s. So I had a real sort of dilemma as I could pick sort of people that I never really played with, but was at the club with at the same time, you know. But from there, I think the first games that I was ever involved in as a, as a player, I was 16, and I would go as the backup keeper. As I said before, we had three subs. Gunny was in goal. Marsh was out in loan. The other keepers were injured. And I had to go. I was going to school during the, the day and then going to the games in the evenings. I remember going, we played Port Vale away and West Brom away. The, the first two games of my involvement as a squad. Yeah. And I think we lost 6-2 and 6-1 or something like that in the two games away from home. It was a nightmare. And you just sat in the dressing room looking around going, what on earth is going on? But from that, you had the likes of Ian Crook, who was just a wonderful footballer. You know, I speak to my mates who are my age and they're, they're Spurs fans. And they remember Ian Crook being a brilliant footballer. Just seeing vision, you make a run, I'll find you. Made really difficult things, really, really, look really simple. Would uh, stand on the back of the bus and have a cigarette on the way home from a game. It, you know, it's, it's kind of, it was of those days. That was of the time. You think sort of the, the eras that your career has spanned, spanned across, he'd, he'd be there. And, you know, he, he was... I think probably he was sort of the player of that that team, sort of the end of that era, sort of Mike Walker's era, being relegated and and having to sort of trying to turn it around. That sort of uh, that team, he, he was kind of the kingpin of that. Darren Eady was in there, obviously his shining light. Sort of went on to play for Leicester and in the Premier League as well. Brilliant talent, you know. Just just again unplayable on his day and we all saw it you know what he what he could do and just uh just had moments where you just went well that's football for you you know there is a guy and if he gets into a certain situation does a certain thing there's no one who can stop him yeah he could do that had an absolute bullet of a shot as well with his left foot he could rocket it and yeah balls were heavy and they drop and this is where the fingers came in is is they just they just, just would, they, they were finger breakers. They were awful. You stand there, you hit them, you think, oh no, this is going to work. There's no two ways about it. So that was great that he, you know, to, to be able to play with someone like that, with an ability like that, that, that you just say, okay, this is what you're up against as a keeper. You know, you're up against that every day. And then obviously there's uh, Yusuf Safri, who, again, I think when he came, he would, 
again, someone who was, you know, you, you, Gary Holt, where you would say would have great success in the side, and someone, and then other players, Phil Moore Ryan was a good football, David Francis is obviously a fantastic footballer for his time at the club. I just felt Yusuf was, looking back with hindsight, operating mentally on a different level to everybody else. Uh, and he was sort of a player that you'd be on the pitch and he said, give me the ball. And he'd go, well, I'm marked. He said, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to lose it. Just keep giving the ball. Keep giving the ball. And we we play, and it was sort of at a time where in the Premier League you're struggling. You want to go. Your natural instinct was to go long, just to yeah. protect yourself. Yeah. He said, no, no, no. Give me the ball. It doesn't matter. And the confidence that he had, and now you see, and when you go on to play with better players, yeah, yeah, you go, ah, okay. Now I get it. Yeah. At the time you're there, going, oh no, 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 no. don't pass the ball. Don't don't pass it in the ball because we could lose it, and he could shoot, and he could score. At the time, and you see it now, you know, you see the mm. back, but, 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 trying to work the way through. It was just that mindset of it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm above this. We spoke about Harks again. He's, he's a player that could do things that no one else could. He'd give him the ball, he'd move you up the pitch 30, 40 yards, he'd give him the ball, and he'd go and score. Um, I loved sort of having that, the old multi ball system. Where the ball would go off and just the ball boy would have the ball in his hands yeah. and he'd catch it, spin it, and I wouldn't even have to look. You just hit it, <laughs> and he'd be he'd be off, and cool. you'd go. And you know, the, he was such a threat, such a weapon that that long diagonal uh, over the top. If if the fullback's a yard out of position, you just smash it. Um, I always remember that Greeno. That was my. Out of all of the saves, the games, the the that the thing that I always remember of you was, as I said at the start, your just absolute catapult of a throw, you know, over the top, over the halfway line, straight to Hux. Just mm. literally feed him and let him do the work for you, and he and he and he certainly did the job, didn't he? Well, it's it's a lot simpler passing one ball and getting Hux <laughs> having, to, having to break down the whole team, isn't it? So, yeah, I, I, he's. Obviously, one like a club legend now, and, and one that he, you know, don't get me wrong, he had his own limitations as a as a player, but he knew them, and he knew what he could do, and he knew how to get the best out of what he wanted to do, and how to operate how teams didn't want him to do, yeah. you know, and so you know, he, he was as we said before, a huge part of that promotion successful season. Um, Ewan was, what What can you say about Ewan? I mean, he's kind of, I was there when he came, uh, struggled at the start, mm. I think had a long sort of look in the mirror and turned it around. And from that point on, he's just success after success after success, really. Uh, I felt sorry for him that he didn't get a year in the Premier League. Um, there's no sentimentality in football. They're probably looking at it saying one of the higher earners in the team needed the money to go elsewhere. Um, mm. it, it would have been nice for him to have a stab. Um, and especially after being such a integral part and such an important part of, of a successful side. It was brilliant to play with. It was kind of funny that, you know, we said about hitting hucks. He'd, he'd point to about 
two and a half, three yards to his over his left shoulder, and he'd stand down the left channel, and he said, "Just hit it there. If you hit it there, I will win it." And I, <laughs> if I got it right, if I got it right, there wasn't his timing and his leap was such that he would win it. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a big guy, but he wasn't he wasn't a giant. He wasn't a you know yeah. a, a John Carew oh. or someone like that where he could hold a whole defense. So, but. <laughs> And and Flitwick and and but he knew and everybody else on the team knew someone like Gary Holt and Hux or yeah. whoever it might be he's up front with would just go I just want that I'm off and all of a sudden you you, you need sometimes the simple things that work really well and then yeah the, the, you talk about shame of of you and um, you know shame of mm-hmm. Dean Ashton's career is was you know my genuine belief was he would have been as close to Alan Shearer that England would have had. Uh, Reno, before you start complimenting Dean Ashton, I've got a little surprise for you. Well, I was Greeny, going to go on. top man. Uh, we've always got on very well, mainly because I allow you to take the piss out of me all the time uh, when we were playing. But great times at Norwich and at West Ham, um, which is surprising considering you are actually an intelligent footballer which isn't allowed. I always remember, he's reading a book. Why? Was was what I heard. Um, but something needs to be explained. In Mercy, back in the day, right at the back, there's Robert Green with a Rain Mac with the hooded bit just on his head, arms not inside, like it was a cape. That needs to be ex- explained because it was shocking. All the best, mate. Greeno, I'm sorry, mate. Good luck explaining that one. <laughs> because I could. <laughs> what was the thought process there? Uh, I, I never, I, I never drank till I was 26. Right. So, yeah. uh, there wasn't that excuse. Um, I would socialise with my mates. My mate would run a pub. He ran a pub with his parents, and I go on a uh not go to the pub with them and I sit and have a coke or whatever and just be sat chatting and and you you sort of get a message saying we're off to the nightclub on a Tuesday night you get a Wednesday off or something like that. Yeah. And I thought oh, this is the least inviting thing I'd ever want to do. And I'm sat there in your coat ready to go. In your coat. I'd actually go in. I go in in shorts and flip flops, and 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 I and I sit there and I'd, I'd have my anorak on. It was raining, and you turn around and you walk up to night. You walk up to the door, and the bouncer would be there, and I go, oh my, what's, "What's what's this turning up?" And I'd have my and I say, "Well, we'll go, and I I'll, I'll come, but I'll only come because I can bring me mates because we can carry on. And they're like, "Nice one, yeah, of course we can we can go in the." in the nightclub with Rob or whatever and see the lads. Great. And he sit there and he go, well, and he walk up to the door and they'd see a bloke with a, an anorak on and shorts and flip-flops. And he'd take it off and it was like sort of a, one of those uh, Jedi things where they sort of, but and they just, you take it off and they go, oh, all right, Rob, in you go. Yeah. And it, 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 but it was, it was kind of, you know, just the way it was. And I was not bothered. 
you're not you're not there to impress. I wasn't there to you know. I, I'd, I'd go with my mates and carry on where we yeah. were in the club and carry on. I think you know someone like Dean with with all these footballing attributes wasn't blessed elsewhere, and so would happen to dress up. In, uh, <laughs> give it give it his all. You know, so other people didn't have to do that. But he was he was wonderfully talented and. You know, down to earth guy. It it was again. I used to basically take the piss out all the time, mainly in training, because he had such a hard shot that you just do all you could to put put him off. Right. And so, what did you say? Him. What were the things you were oh, saying? We called him uh, something about his lack of hair, um, <laughs> and we just carried on and in. We do it as a unit, a goalkeeping unit. So we had like Darren Wall, Paul Gallagher, Joe Lewis. There's three or four of us there. And at one point, he's brilliant. He he went to shoot. We were training at training ground. He went to shoot and he missed from close range from this cross. And as a group, it went off into the farmland or whatever is behind the training ground. And with this group, we started laughing and going, "Oh, unlucky, Baldy!" And he turned around and went. And he, I can't remember which one of these he turned to. It wasn't me. He went, never, ever call me that again. At which point, I think it was Paul Gallagher who turned around and went, yeah, sorry, Baldy. <laughs> 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 and he carried on. He carried on through to West Ham. We scored. He scored the winner against Blackburn at Ewood Park. We won one nil. It was an awful game. Super Sunday or whatever. The last game of the weekend. Sky were fuming. It was such a bad game. We were fuming. It was such a bad game. We won. And he scored a tap-in from six yards and missed a tap-in to make it even easier. And the defence scrapped out a win. I made some saves. And they'd take two players in to get interviewed after the game. And it was me and Dean. I thought, oh, great. They've got the goal scorer and the man of the match sort of thing so we stood there doing this and and they said they turned to me at the end and went rob so uh dean's one man of the match and i was like what said, <laughs> if you could hand him the bottle of champagne i went, I turned, looked at him and went well done baldy and he didn't even flinch he went yeah cheers rob and we just walked <laughs> off and then he looked at his phone after the game and he looked at me and went can't believe you just did that. I was like, what? He said, he said, all oh, my mates are now messages. And they said, and he cut back to Andy Gray and he went, Baldy, Baldy's just won in the game. So, <laughs> so from that point on, yeah, he's uh, no, he's brilliantly talented and horribly cut short in his career, but great guy. See him around at games and stuff like that. And he's, uh, yeah, top boy. Greener, I want to ask you, but we, we, we've brought up West Ham there, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good segue. Of course, you you left Norwich City for West Ham, um, reportedly £2 million. Um, I remember listening to another interview that you did a few years back now about the fact that it was a long time coming, actually, and that you were very much, if you if it's fair to say, you were very much you know ready to, to leave Norwich City. Was it, would, would you say it was a bad breakup between you and Norwich City? Um, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I'd say it was uh, protracted. Uh, I think it was eventually the right club. I mm. think there were a number of clubs coming prior 
Portsmouth, Portsmouth and Tottenham. Portsmouth, Tottenham, Everton. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, and the figures mentioned were or requested were obscene uh, at the time, and it just was one that you're saying you're pricing me out of a move. Right. Um, in personally, you know, you if you moved to Norwich when you were as a player. 32 and you had wife and kids and you were settled you think what a place if you move there when you were 16 like it did you think mm. what a place it is a wonderful place when you turn 26 and you've been there for 10 years and you've from used to being you know you remember being in london and the True. the the lifestyle that that brings not so much in uh like I said, going to nightclubs was you know wasn't that bothered about not in that respect, but just the anonymity of mm. being a West Ham player when you've got Tottenham around the corner, Arsenal around the corner, Chelsea on there. Saying you know you just one of you get on the tube and you stand there and go like there's five people on the tube more famous than me. It's it's, it's you know and no one's bothering them either. You just get on with your day and you live in Norwich and you're just like. The, you can't you, go you, you know everyone knows who you are and you, yeah. you can watch and in that regards it just became a bit much you know that uh, long-term relationship and it, that was something else that thought well there's time to move on with something else and it just felt like uh it was holding back my life in some regards greater than football and so um it actually came you know, there was frustration of this way the seasons were going. I think we got relegated and we had a really poor season, um, relatively speaking, finishing sort of eighth or ninth, where we were favourites to go back up again. And it got to the end of the season and we had a, a thank you to the away fans drink after the last game behind yeah. one of the, in one of the stands. And my mum and dad, who came to every game, came and they would watch me throughout my career and my dad turned around and said oh i've just gonna i've just got to go off and he walked off and spoke to nigel worthington and he and it was just a plea as a father to say look this is this is rob's life as well you know this isn't bargaining for the right money mm -hmm. Rob's since he was 12 13 years old is more than half his life he's He's done everything he can do for the club. There is a time and a place where things need to come to an end. And he put it, I think, in such a way that, you know, I think in a very nice way, made it clear to Nigel, just basically where I was coming from, made it clear to the club. And, and yeah. Nigel turned around and said, yeah, I think it's time that Rob moved on. And I snapped my groin that summer. That was the summer of the World Cup where I was selected and didn't yes. go which uh, really sort of dragged it out and made it a stressful time. Mm. But I remember sort of the, the window was closing and it was Charlton had an offer accepted and West Ham had an offer accepted. Mm. And and it was sort of speaking to Alan Pardew and Pard saying what he, you know, and they'd had such a wonderful season and Dean was there and he phoned me up and said, you know, we can be reunited. Uh, it was, uh, uh, um, and, that, was and that put you 
had to put me off actually. But, um, <laughs> but no, it was it was kind of it was just a. It, it felt like it was probably a year too long, yeah. um, which was which was a shame in some regards because um, it's it, it didn't tarnish anything or mm. make it worse. It was it was just it was just that you know for me things have moved on. I'm pleased to hear it, it. It didn't tarnish things, Robert. That's that's really good to hear because all the Norwich City fans still hold you in extremely high regard as as one of our club legends. Um, this is a bit of a, a random one, Robert. I, I, I'd leaked to a, a well-known uh, Chelsea fan uh, on social media, son of Chelsea, um, great, great guy, very articulate, fantastic um, journalism and, and, and channel that he, that he's got, and he was fascinated to understand from you what your opinion was on the transition from going and playing at a club like Norwich City and obviously you'd then gone to West Ham and so on and so forth eventually fast forward many years you're at Chelsea and you're you're lifting the Europa League trophy what was the what was the transition like for you from in terms of culture and you know dealing with the the expectation levels at Chelsea and dealing with the internal politics and perhaps dare I say the egos at Chelsea what was that like for you I think at Chelsea the final year I think it came completely out of the blue I was on holiday and got a call and I was contemplating retiring and said got a call saying would you like to sign short conversation um and it was actually the day before I was having a chat with my wife and said uh where where would what so there's a number of clubs come in and i thought well my life has always been about challenges which was one of the problems at norwich when i left or before i left was the challenge had gone ah you know the which which is a quite a salient point that you you're looking at you're looking at um what do i do at norwich after we got relegated get promoted again yeah so if you're if you're a challenge-based person and the challenge's gone, then what's the point in doing mm. it? So it's kind of in that regard. And so I said, look, there's one thing I've never done is is being a team that's a top, top team. Now, I'm never going to play, unlikely, um, but just to experience it, to go along. I've done international football. I've done Premier League football, done championship. I'm not professionally interested in League One, League Two. You know, I, I, I just... That top end is something that I've been, and it was literally the next day a call came. Wow, so fantastic! Um, you learn quickly, you learn quickly at a club like Chelsea on the pitch and off the pitch. You know, I played a couple of games in pre season friendlies, and you learn, I learned as much playing in those friendlies as I had done in many years of playing football before then. And you kind of regret, in some regrets, sort of. You, you, it's difficult to understand how quickly you know football moves on, but then if you had the education of being at a Chelsea at the start of your career, and your brain is operating kind of like Yusuf Safri, your your brain's operating here, your brain's operating at a different level rather than get the ball as far away from your goal as possible and they won't score. Yeah. Then, then you kind of your career may have panned out differently. But it was a brilliant experience, it's a tough one, and I think I got three four days off in a year um 
because wow. you're just playing so, oh, during when, when international breaks came around you got a rest but during the season during the in in game season you, you got three four days off mm. that was it uh you just in every day and you know i think you grow within the role that you're given and you take on the responsibility that's not on the pitch and mm. how i was you know explaining the lifting of the europa league the, the cup and that was you know explaining to guys that was going to retire how i become off the pitch someone who could speak which is a rarity mm. national it was a born speaker, which is a first, which is really important. Um, someone who could speak their mind, could, mm -hmm. could convey an opinion, and someone who could really sort of uh, back back the lads, back, go out and back for the team and say, look, I'm going to say this because these guys are scared of saying it because of the effects. Not going to be a problem for me. What are you going to do? You know, uh, my, my my time's come and gone. All I'm going to hear is I'm going into back for these guys. And and they appreciated that. And you say egos. It was one of, I no, no, it was the most welcoming dressing room. Was it? Wow. It, and that's not a bad thing about other dressing rooms. It was just everyone was so friendly. Everyone was just on board. I think the fact that there's so many nationalities, it makes it very much an even keel. Everyone's on the same foothold. Everyone appreciated what everyone else brought to the party. And you know what? When you went into and I and I stood up and spoke for the team on numerous occasions and said, you know, to the manager and to the coaches and stuff, and went, no, you know, you've got this wrong, which is tough, you know, to come up and. So when they found out I was retiring, they sort of, I was forced onto the, the stand to lift the trophy. And then, you know, the, the captain lifted it, Asby Laqueta lifted it, Gary Cahill, the two captains, David Luiz was next. And he went, well, who's next? And he saw me and he went, it's got to be you. <laughs> you either, well, you either own this or you you die. And I thought, well, this is, this is the last moment of my career. And I lifted the trophy and I could see my family in the stand, tiny, wow. tiny dots. And then you're just like, wow, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm happy. So what? in that regard, um, but yeah, to move from playing every week to not playing, yeah, tough. And eventually it's, there's something inside that just sort of the flickers, sort of the, the, the embers start to, to die out a bit. And you realize that your role is different and, <clears throat> it's a new challenge in a different way and you've got to you've got to create that new challenge Greeno what's your message to the Norwich City fans that supported you that that drove up and down the, the country watching you in yellow and green you know since that 1999 period all the way up until you sadly departed to to West Ham what's your message to the to the yellow army that's that, that backed you over the years it's, it's, it is an army. It's, it's a brilliant following. And you, you never really understand what it takes to, to back a team like that. And you'd say that it was reciprocated. I don't think there was any moment 
in, in my time that I knew anyone on the team at any point who would not be there a hundred percent. It's an honest bunch of lads that's always been there that I've always ever known. And it's an honest group and it's sort of per capita, one of the best supported teams, you know, that you've seen the, the fact that you can sell out in league one, the fact that you can sell out in the championship in the, in, in the Premier League is, is wonderful earns. It's just always been something that's been, you know, a, will be a part of my life was, uh, or a club that I grew up with and, and there is nothing but warm feelings and thanks really. And it's, uh, it was a fantastic time and, and one that my, you know, my parents spent as long as they did driving. Every game was an away game for them because they yeah. were coming <laughs> So it's kind of, you know, Crystal Palace was the closest game for them or wherever it might have been. But, it, but yeah, it was, it was a brilliant time of my life and uh, they were a huge part of it. Greeno, thank you so, so much for all of your stories, your anecdotes, your sharing your, your Norwich City memories with us today. I really, really appreciate your time. Pleasure, Chris. On and the Ball you. City. Oh, yeah, you're in early. On the Ball City. I ended it. I, <laughs> it. I waited an hour, over an hour to say it. Get <laughs> thank you so much to everyone that's watching and listening around the world. Of course, if you enjoyed this episode with Mr. Wonky Finger, Greeno himself. Do give us a thumbs up on YouTube, a subscribe on Spotify, iTunes. Tweet us, Instagram us, at TalkNorthCity on social media, and we'll share all of your posts as a thanks for your support. Robert Green, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for everything you did in yellow and green. Thank you so much for your time. And as you said, on the Ball City. On the Ball City. Thank